Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today's a really special interview because Bev Salata is the mother of one of our all-time favorite humans, Jennifer. She is a retired school psychologist who I'm so happy exists and was a part of so many people's journeys who came before us because it's her insight and ability to see the potential of a whole child that I feel was a light in the history of the darkness that came before us, and even more so, a part of the foundation that made it possible for us to continue in this fight for an education for our child. So welcome, Dr. Bev Salata. Hello, Hello, Beverly. Hello, Beverly. Good morning. Hello. It's so nice to finally meet you. We've heard so many wonderful things about you, and I'm so excited for this conversation. I'm so excited, but um, maybe we could start by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, now I am starting from the the end point. Um, retired, got grandchildren, kids, a lot of interesting interests, things that I like to do. But I had been a school psychologist and a child psychologist for probably about 40 something years. I also used to teach at the University of Maryland. I was a school psychologist for a number of years and, and did a number of things. I did research, I did writing, uh, clinical practice, supervision, teaching. I did a lot of parent lectures and it's one of my favorite things to do was to help parents with children who have various needs. So I've worked with just about every kind of child and just about every kind of parent. I can only imagine over a 40 year span, the changes you witnessed in students, in parents, in school districts. I think of where my son is now and the opportunities he has for a lot of great things that weren't available 40 plus years ago. I even think about when I went to school, that I didn't go to school with anyone like my son. They weren't included in my school. That's true. If they were included in a school and there were other kids at the school, it could have been another classroom somewhere in the back of, of the campus. Yes. You can tell she's a good listener because you have not asked a question. <laughs> yeah, I have not asked a question. <laughs> You're just telling her. Uh, I think we're both. I think we're both just really excited because there's so many areas that I feel like we could talk to you about. Just even being a part of the school system and what that journey was like, and also the the work that you did in supporting children and supporting parents. I don't think that piece of supporting parents is really something, it's not anything that we've experienced for the most part as far as supporting parents on the best ways to support your child. And thirdly is, you know, just as far as the psychology of, as a parent, what our journey is and the impact and toll it can take and some ways to to process it. Or 
I don't even know if process is the word as much as how to make the journey the best you can for you and your family. Yes, because right out of the gate for parents, they receive a diagnosis that's handed to them in a very negative tone uh, that sets the foundation for what our path is. And it takes us all maybe a different at different rates, we figure out that it's not really what they told us. But it's that impact. The way the news is delivered has such an impact on us. And then it impacts our children and their opportunities. This reminds me of something. When I start with parents in my practice way before I see a child, I just naturally gravitate towards saying, um, the first thing I want you to do is brag about your child. Tell me what's wonderful. I don't even want to hear the problems. I don't want to hear what they think the diagnosis is. I want to hear what's wonderful. because, And I want to hear about the whole child. Because how am I going to ever put any of the pieces of problems? And what, what I usually say is, you know, tell me what's wonderful. Then we'll, I'll ask you about any problems that you have and what you've tried to do about those problems and what you'd like help with. But that starts with what's wonderful about your child. And um, anybody who starts with a diagnosis or here are the problems that you're going to face. I don't have a lot of patience for, but I have to deal with that as well. I have to be able to interface with those children so that they are doing the best for my kids that they can. So even though I hear it and I hate it, the kind of things that you know you experience, I have to be able to get around it to change people's attitudes. And one of the ways I change school systems attitudes, I know you didn't ask for this, but um, you might want to think about this for Liam for next year. If I'm not going to a meeting, I prepare a sheet for parents, large print bulleted, and it starts with child strengths. And I, I just go through everything and, you know, hobbies, um, kindness to their siblings, whatever. Then the next thing I say is um, problems that I note. And then the third thing is, here's what you can do to help with those problems. At times I've had parents bring that sheet to every single teacher. So the first introduction the teacher has, well, maybe maybe some principal or somebody's gotten to the teacher, um, you know, first with information, oh, this is going to be a difficult child. Because I had a lot of kids who you would say are difficult. So, you know, you think the teacher, the, the principal might say something like, oh, you're going to have your hands full here. Way before they get that information, though, I want them to have a sheet that says, this is, this is the child's strengths. This is what's wonderful about them. So you have the context. And I think that's one of the, parents biggest jobs but I don't think anybody teaches parents to do this that that's your job bring the whole of the child and the wonderful things about the child so we can put the other pieces in where they belong and so you feel motivated to work on them because if you start with something like uh, lazy stupid depressed start with any of those things um, it's hard to get out the motivation to want to do the very best you can both for parents and for kids I think of the idea of a principal and a teacher coming together to talk about a difficult child or a child that you're going to have your hands full with. And I've heard that, you know. Nobody comes to the parent and said, this is a difficult teacher. You're going to have your hands full. You got that right. <laughs> it's about, it's the, con I think those are the conversations. Yeah, it's like the, it's like the idea that when a, when, a, when a parent has two children, one is neurotypical and one has a diagnosis and they concentrate on, well, I have these accommodations for this child as if it is a burden and as if mm -hmm. the child is less than when it's when, when you talk that way. And I wonder what kind of mindset that sets 
a teacher and principal up with, or just a professional, you know, cause you're working as professional, you're working as I got to get this done, this done, but then maybe you lose some of the important. You lose the child. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, when I used to go to IEP meetings and stuff, um, first thing I would say is, you know, he has a stamp collection, <laughs> you know, um, these, this is what you need to know about this child. And then I go on. So I think it's the responsibility of the professionals you hire and parents to be able to keep putting that first. This is a human being. And all of us have things, things we don't really want to start out with. You know, like you have a pimple behind your ear. I mean, you, you don't want to go to a meeting and have yourself introduced that way. So, um, yeah, it's hard. But I don't think, uh, I don't know that there are books on that. I don't know that. People focus on that, but I think it can really set a child up well if the parents, the teachers, the principals start with what's wonderful about this child. What an interesting thing to bring up at an IEP. I do. To say, yeah, but you, you know, like if I think if I sat in a room and I said, if we, you know, if the rest of the people on the team could understand what if we took just whatever your challenge is right now. And that's how we introduced you because introductions are so important. I learned that a long time ago. I had a friend who was the best introducer of people and he would take like a great quality of each person. And that's how you introduce them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's no place where taking a challenge. That's not how we introduce people. But yet again, this is, this is what parents experience. And, and that's really, <laughs> I was thinking about, you did it for 40 something years. I, I can't imagine the IEPs you sat in on 40 something years ago. And what made you, what made you start on this path? Well, they didn't have IEPs for 40 mm, years. Yeah. That's only a relatively recent in terms of my lifespan. I'm sorry, well, Lori, what was your question? What led you to this kind of work? Originally working with children? Yeah. Oh, well, myself as a teenager, I was depressed and I had this probably it. I had uh, five years of therapy with a wonderful therapist. I didn't need that long. I learned how as a therapist myself to do it much more quickly. It was just a talking cure then. You know, you talked a lot and theoretically things were going to shape up. But um, yeah, I think maybe that therapist um, kind of inspired me to become one. But in college, I um, was a um, music major, English major, art major. And I took my first psychology class. Um, then I became a psychology major. I took my first psychology class. Um, it was experimental psychology, nothing I was interested in. And I um, got a D. And you couldn't continue as a psych major unless you had at least a C average. So I had an ethical dilemma when I signed up for the next semester and was trying to get more psychology classes, whether or not I would say anything about my grade point average when they asked, how have you done in your psych classes? Well, I got one D. Anyway, but I said I had a C average. Then that whole year, I read everything in the psych library. I had other courses, but every day I would take home five or six books and come home and uh, read them and return them the next day or two. And I became more and more interested in um, helping children through that process. But I remember even as a teenager, we had, uh, I, there was a girl in the neighborhood, family friend who was a couple of years younger. Um, and we would go for walks and she would tell me about her life and issues she had. And I you know, just really enjoyed listening to her and seeing if I could help. So uh, that's probably why I could do that. And almost always when I, 
intervened at an IEP or intervened in a child's life, I got wonderful feedback. So it would keep me going. And you, would you like to hear a little short story of like one of those things? Of course. I had a kid who was probably five or six and his parents were concerned about his gender identity. He was a little boy, wanted to be a little girl. And he was also afraid of swimming, didn't want to go in the swimming pool. And so this little boy, let's call him Tom, uh, and I worked on swimming all the while I was figuring out, you know, how are we, and this is way before anybody was tolerant of these kind of things in the classroom. This was 20, 30 years ago. And so I was working with him on swimming, on parents, on how are you going to help this little boy get through life the best he can. Um, and then I stopped seeing him and must've been six months or so. One September night, I get a phone call. I pick it up. It's at home. And mother says, Tom wants to speak to you. And I say, hey, Tom, how are you doing? He says, Dr. Bev, I can swim. And so that's the kind of feedback I would get a lot. And I still have some of those people still kind of writing me letters and telling that their own kids now. And so it's just been extreme. I didn't need to get my arm twisted to keep it up for 40 years. It was just wonderful. The part of our IEP that actually is one that we dread is when they do the psych evaluation on our son. Yeah. And I feel like from the root of what you're looking at, like this is a child as a whole to what it's become has just become so, un it's just very unfortunate that the matter of seeing the whole child and actually wanting to just support them in their life. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that that's not really what the, the experience that we have. Right. It doesn't seem like it's built that way. It's just kind of a check the box and then have someone visit your child for a day. Instead of spending all this time swimming, you know, we're just, let's pop in for a minute. And I know I don't really know him, but here I'm going write, to write up a big report about it. Well, I got to tell you, when I did do the psych, psych evaluations to the school system, uh, it was much more intensive than but it was a long time ago and I don't know when IEP started, but I started, you know, from the get-go doing psych reports for kids. But my focus was always, how can we get people to want to make this kid reach all the, all the potential they have? So it was always my focus. I mean, there's a certain structure about a psych report that you can't really change too much. You have to have the test findings and stuff, but how you write, how you write your findings and more importantly, how you write your conclusions and suggestions for the future um, can make all the difference in somebody looking at that. All of my parents, when I finish a psych report, are so happy to have it because it tells them about their, their kid and they, they might want it on any of their other children because it, it highlights things that it's important to know. Like, for instance, I, I had what you might call ADD when I was growing up. And uh, if there were distractions when I was taking tests, my mind was just following the distractions. So you could never really get a good performance out of me. And, you know, and, and, and unfortunately, or fortunately, I graduated before they had an IP, which would say, you know, give this child time and a half. I've, I had, I've had to fight for three times as much time for some of my kids, put them in a setting that's not going to be distracting. I remember taking the Miller's analogy. It's part of a test I needed to, to do to get into grad school. Uh, it was a kind of test where you had to answer one analogy question every minute. And if you didn't stay on it, basically you get a bad score. 
And I remember I was taking it, and this was in New York City, and I was taking it in a room with about 10, 12 other people. The proctor was eating, and I tell you it's New York City because they were eating sour pickles. And sour pickles in New York are just wonderful. I haven't found them anywhere else. But he would crunch, crunch, crunch. And every time there was a crunch, I was off target. Um, in classes, I, I got one of the highest GRE scores in psychology, and I also, I, I was a school psychologist in the public school system, and I came in number one. It was printed in the paper out of 100 candidates, and when you tested me in the right atmosphere, you will get the best performance, and when you don't, you would think that I didn't know half as much as I knew, and so well done. IEPs should give the parents, the kid, him, her, herself, and the school system some idea of what you can do to enhance the basic skills the child has, which ones you have to work around, which ones you have to emphasize, which, which hurdles you jump over, what things do you substitute, and which things you just keep trying because you know that if, with, a, with a lot of practice, this kid is finally going to be able to get that. And so if a report doesn't tell you that, what's the point? I mean, if it's just the point to sort them into apples or peaches or whatever, that's not a reason for a report. So well done IP. And, and there are those because I've read them because parents brought in copies of the IPs that other psychologists did. And they were um, often very, very illuminating and very, very helpful. But you can get some that aren't. It's not an unreasonable expectation to have of a psych evaluation. No, you, you, you do need that for almost, well, for any of the kinds of kids I, I've worked on, there was a, a psych evaluation, even if it's a thing like depression or anxiety, because you probably want to know what it's getting in the way of. Is it getting away of um, taking math tests? In which cases there's something special you should be doing for this kid? Or should you just be working on the side to, to help them with their anxiety so they can go into a kind of regular situation and, and do well? It could be a really helpful piece of information. And the fact that the feedback to you um, has often been something where you have to hold your breath um, is kind of sad. Well, you know, because they do these, um, I forget what they're called, basics, B-A-S-K or something like that. And a lot of the questions have nothing to do like, you know, when walking to the store alone, does your child, can he take, and this was like in the third grade, I'm like, my child doesn't walk to the store. And they're like, this, sorry, this is the only thing that we have. Um, and I very defiantly would say I would put not applicable and then it would go against Liam's score because you have to score it. So either you fill in that he can't do it, but you can't write cause he's five. Right. So then evaluations are made on incomplete information, but still that score, that's my biggest thing is that score goes into my son's report. Yeah. I'm very vocal about it because you know, a lot of times it's not, it's not somebody who is actually interested in showing and like, let's get down to and see what we can do to help. It feels like there's like, there's something missing. Right. And I just want parents to know that it is actually supposed to be a tool that helps. It is supposed to give information that helps. It's okay to ask questions, correct? Like we can, well, not only can you ask questions, but for a lot of my parents, um, and you have this right to do, I believe, legal right you can amend the file you can put in your own response to what's happening and it goes in the same permanent file that the other information is going in 
So if you feel a test was invalid, you just write something and you say you would like it in the file. I don't know what they do in California and I don't know because I practiced in Maryland and I don't know what they do today about those kind of things, but um, you do have a right. And it's good for parents to know that that evaluation is there. It's supposed to help your child and it's supposed to give information. You do have a right to amend it. And you can also ask for your own independent evaluation. Yes. But, um, right. Bev, I wanted, I do want to visit on the subject of like this journey of having a child with Down syndrome, some of the exterior stuff that comes to us from the diagnosis to the fight with education, that it can take a toll on parents and just any thoughts that you had on the toll that it can take and also maybe perspective or ways that parents can deal, heal. Mm -hmm. I know Stephen and I are really working on what I've noticed is since getting out of the old school, I have huge trust issues. Having our first IEP with this new school who's amazing, every point along the way, we were just like, all right, I know I shouldn't feel this way, but... We just, it was really hard to trust. Like when is this person just going to rip this mask off and it's going to be someone that is against us? Yeah. You're just expecting the worst. And I hate feeling like that. Oh, so you asked a lot of questions, uh, just steering in the right direction if I'm not answering them. I wanted to start with the, the journey though, because uh, everybody's journey is different. So uh, there's probably some basic things and probably some People did some research and maybe there are steps like the death and dying steps, but you have to know, know what your journey is and you have to honor your journey. And there may be parents who do this much more seamlessly, it seems, and ones that don't. And what you have to do is find something that works for you. So that's the very first thing. So get your body and soul in the best place you can by doing all the things your mother told you to do, eat, sleep have some time for fun if you can and all of those things. So you're in the very best place you can because in fact, you're waging a war a lot of the time and you have to make sure that you try to take some of that time to recover from the slings and arrows you know, you're know, you facing. But then for each person, there, there would probably be something else I would advise them. For instance, for me, I love to do meditation. I like the particular app Headspace, but there are so many of them. And one of the things that sounds very strange, one of the kinds of meditations you can do is a um, loving kindness meditation where you're wishing good things on for, for people that you love and then for neutral people that you don't love and then for people that you're really having a hard time with. And when I have worked with teachers, I, I gave this workshop um, dealing with difficult parents. Did our name come up? Yeah, that'd be us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had them, um, I, I would have the parents do this loving kind, kindness meditation. It's thinking certain things, it's being quiet in a meditation, meditative pose and saying, you know, uh, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, may be, you be strong, may you be loved, may you live with ease. And it's saying that and having the image of the person you're saying it to. So you start with people you love and it's easy, like for you, your children. And then you move on to neutral people. And then you move on to people you're really having a difficult time with. And I would have all of these teachers do this in order, you know, think of someone you love, somebody who's neutral and think of a child or a parent that's just giving you a lot of grief. And, you know, put down a, a comment about how you're feeling now about it. And then I would take them through the meditation where they're doing it on this person that they've just kind of 
jotted something down about. I asked them after each, each time I do this workshop, how are you feeling about that person now? And they all are much more at ease, all much more willing to work with that person. And so, you know, before you go into an IEP and you haven't met these people, I, I can't tell you to, to do one of those. But in fact, if there's a principal or psychologist or somebody in the new school who, uh, or a teacher um, that you had an interaction with, I would think about doing a loving kindness meditation before you go in there. Because if they will relate to you, largely depending on how you're relating to them. And if they can see that you've got your guns drawn, then that's going to be different if you look like you're kind of at ease and really willing to listen to them. So besides kind of getting yourself in a good place, it's um, getting your attitude in a place where you can be more accepting. And then you may find that, that they then will actually listen to you. Because if you go in very, very, you know, you're attacking or you're very, very defensive, that just brings out the worst in people. I see people turn around from, from being really angry about a child and not wanting to do anything to somebody being more accepting. So that's something very hard that I just told you to do, no matter how you want to take out a punching bag and punch some of these people who have given you so much pain and that there's no denying the pain, but then you have to ask yourself, okay, I've got to, I've got to help Liam. So if I go in with my punching bag, am I really setting it up? the best for this child. And no, you're not, because the teacher is now thinking two angry parents who are ready to stomp on me if I do anything wrong, instead of two parents who understand that I have a lot of kids in the classroom, that I'm overworked and underpaid, and this is all true. By the way, most teachers, they are overworked and underpaid, and they have more to deal with than they could possibly, nowadays, possibly ever. Now they have to worry about somebody coming and shooting in a, shooting up a classroom and teaching kids survival skills if that happens. I mean, so uh, I think part of the responsibility then, if you want to help your child, is to get yourself in a place where you can be a little easier when you go into those meetings. But that's easier said than done. And I think you have to practice meditation for a while <laughs> to get yourself in that place. And that doesn't deny any of the harm. But the question is, okay, they've done the harm. They can either continue to do the harm or maybe you can help them make a slight adjustment, which will help. And as soon as they make any kind of adjustment, and that's the other thing I would say is reinforce them, give them gold stars. Um, and if they have done anything like um, spent a little extra time with, uh, for instance, Liam on his homework or said something to him that um, you know made him smile, you write them, right? Writing is more important than talking because writing you have a... Uh, it means more. Somebody takes their time to write something and handwriting, not, not an email, telling them how much you appreciated that. And that meant everything to them. Then they get a dopamine hit because they've just been positively reinforced and they feel good. And the next time they approach your child, they're going to feel better about them. I agree with you 100%. Mm -hmm. Very hard to do, Laurie, though. No, so. no, I, I completely hard. agree with you uh, 100%. And actually we do the the loving we do the loving kindness meditation we actually do every it night every night mm -hmm. <laughs> excellent and, and oh we have goodness. it's actually our uh, grace have, at dinner time it's yeah. actually our blessing at dinner and um and we do it with our children that is wonderful because we all have a challenging relationship and i think it just kind of makes um our connection reminding ourselves that we we're all connected um, we just had a beautiful conversation with micah from playground of empathy which is all about 
empathy and, and honoring each other and holding space for everybody's journey being equal. And it's so it's so funny that we're talking about this here today, because I absolutely 100% agree with it. I think it feels better in our bodies. I think it brings ease uh, where there's conflict. I think the part that's hard and challenging is, you know, one thing that can be frustrating is like when we're making the change that we're doing the work that the other people should be doing. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like we have, oh, yeah. the, the thing is, is that we want to go into a classroom and for a teacher to just support our child, like they do every other child. And, and I think the, what th- takes a psychological toll, which is, I'm so glad you brought this up, is that if they do something for a neurotypical child, that parent doesn't feel like I better write a letter yeah. to, you know what I mean? And, and, and because of that, it bring it, it isolates us as parents because at some point it creates the mindset of lack because it's, it's about equality, but it feels inside that we're not like, it's a reminder that it's not equal and that you have to work at it so much harder. Yeah. And I'm interested to hear what you have to say, because when I got out of that school, my, my soul had been so torn down, constantly begging. You felt like like you had lessened yourself. I had shrunk myself so small, which is what we always tell our kids not to do literally all the way up until the very last day. But the last week, actually the only reason I wanted Liam to return on this, the week before the holiday break, the winter break was because I just wanted once for him to, after COVID, after almost two years of not being around anyone to participate in that silly little winter concert where he, they ring a bell mm-hmm. and they sing the same song just to have that like experience. And I had been asking for the sheet music and doing all, doing all of their work that they're supposed to do because for any neurotypical kid, that sheet music went home weeks before, but I had been begging and that's actually what we do as parents. We beg and it does something to our soul to have to beg. And what came back was the music teacher actually said, now this is their job. And actually it's someone who's actually hired by parents. So it's really the parents, not like an LAUS. It's like someone who does it's an additional, it's teacher, an additional music teacher. enrichment person. She said, you should be thankful that the teacher is giving you this bell. And I just was like, explain to me why I should be thankful that I'm getting equal treatment. That's why I should be thankful. And I think that's why I'm so, I wanted to talk to you so much because how do we compartmentalize? Because we do have to, it's, it's unfortunate, but in this time, like we do, I didn't get to, I didn't write back in handwriting in a letter. Why am I have to be thankful? I had to absorb it because I knew if I said, why should I be thankful that that bell wasn't going to be in the box? Yes. And how do we compartmentalize and not get broken? Well, you may get broken, but how do you repair? The first thing I was thinking of is uh, Liam graduated that day, but so did you. And as hard as he had to work, you probably had to work even harder because you had to help him with his work. But then you had all of your own work you had to do. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, congratulations, and you did what you had to do. And you should be very proud of yourself for doing that. The second thing is, I think you're not going to get what you like from the outside world. This is always going to happen. And in the next school, it's going to happen. There's going to be somebody who's totally mindless about these things. 
you have a couple of options. One is to try to teach them by suggesting reading material or in the conversations that you have, just gently try to teach them. But more importantly, I think you have each other and um, you probably at the end of the day, either should each tell each other three things you did that you're particularly proud of and have the other person really absorb it and be happy for you that you did it. Or if you can't find anything, you know, ask the other one, you know, what did I do today that I should be proud of? <laughs> really, because where are you going to get it from? Yeah, I mean, you go to the school, basically, you're just being sh stabbed every time you go, almost you do. You find those few people who will be your allies. That's another thing you should do because they're always, Mr. Rogers said, my daughter, Jen, loves this expression. He was telling kids if they were having a problem to first look for the helpers. There are always people who want to help you. And I believe in every school system, there are some adults that you could probably find go to that would help you navigate some of these situations and also become a kind of another pair of eyes to be looking over Liam when he starts. It would be nice to, and they could be anybody. They could be um, the gym teacher, it could be a cafeteria lady. I, I have found those kind of allies all over the place. It would be nice if you had the school system support you, but I, I think basically there are two things you, you have to do. And the, the first thing is that you have to support each other, find support where you can, and the next thing you have to do is pass it on, which is exactly what both of you are doing. And the more you can do that, the better. So all these life lessons you have learned, give it to the next set of parents. And there's somebody starting out with a kid in kindergarten that has no clue about some of those things you just mentioned, because the kindergarten, uh, everybody gets paper and crayons and uh, probably not in kindergarten anymore, probably in nursery school. <laughs> I don't know when the the grind starts, but um, you know, there, there's some parent like that. And, and I have found the people I admire in history, the, the ones who have suffered great things seem to find solace in being able to make meaning out of it and pass it on to help other people. And I think that is the way out of it. It's not, can I go shake that crazy music teacher, you know, because it's just not going to find, ultimately you're not going to find any happiness from doing that earlier when you had said to focus on that the things that we do that may feel really difficult in the moment are for the good of Liam. Yes. That's a great motivator. I think about the loving kindness meditation and for how long with certain difficult relationships and I would wish, may you be blessed, may you have peace, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be able, may you have ease of life. How long it took for some of those where I just wasn't gritting my teeth doing it, mm -hmm. or it would transition then to I would do it and it kind of hurt to say it, like, I'm doing this for this person, you know? No, you're not. And then you're doing and, it for Liam I, and yourself. Yes. That's the only reason you're doing it. I don't really care if the other person feels better at the end of the day. I do care that you do, and more importantly, that Liam does. That's what brought me to the point where I could finally say it and it was right and it felt good. And then that person wasn't even in the, the equation of the difficult relationship. I went on to the, the next difficult relationship I wanted to chant for or, or say that for. But you see, the thing is, you already have probably more of a challenge than most parents in general. Then you have the environment and the school system giving you even more of a challenge. And now... Uh, you know, you have another challenge. You have to kind of figure out how you're going to do this so it's not going to hurt Liam. And, you know, and, and now you may even have to 
say loving kindness meditations and it isn't fair. It isn't fair, but I think it can make you stronger. I think it can make you better people because you've gone through it. I think it can make you more compassionate and more empathic. And I think you'll write a book someday or whatever, and you'll see Liam and the wonderful things he's going to do because you did it. So it's not fair, but it's okay. If I look back on all the many issues I had, and I had a lot of different issues in different kinds of ways, um, and, and then I look at the sequel, the sequela of them, you know, what, what it's enabled me to tell you some of the things I just told you today. And that makes me feel good because I'm passing something on that has value and meaning told to me, and it makes it almost worth it. As a matter of fact, if you gave me a choice, you know, would you rather have had ADD and depression and all the things you had or not? Uh, I would rather have had that. And hopefully one, one day when you're not in the middle of the war, because you still are, and you will be until he graduates and then finds a job. And, um, and I suspect, depending on the kind of job and the people he works with, you, your role may ease up quite a bit as he gets more mature. I really think so. But I think right now you've stolen throws of it where parents just have to fight be on top of everything, even even parents with neurotypical kids. This is, uh, how old is Liam? 13? 12. Well, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be hard anyway. Now mm-hmm. it's going to be even harder eventually. Eventually um, it's going to pay off. And every day, of course, it pays off in your relationship with him and the fact that he's probably proud of himself for achieving the things that he does, does achieve. But that's all because you're there. Imagine him with different parents. Imagine him with the parents of the chorus director. Yeah. Well, we, <laughs> I was just thinking about we have a, a living trust and you and you put down people that would care for your children if both of us were gone. And uh, how can anybody, I mean, I, I don't know. How do you how do you do that? Like, how do you actually go? Nobody cares for your children the way you, the way you do. Maybe there's some instances where you can go, you know what? They're going to be great with so-and-so and so-and-so. I, <laughs> I just go, man, we've, we, we've had to learn so much to come to this point. How am I going to transfer that knowledge yeah. to someone else? How am I going to trust someone else to fight the way I fight or to think the way I think about Liam in such a way that is evolving? Just like how you talk about the child who was born a boy but, but, Wanted to be a but girl. feels to be a girl or wants to be but feels to be. Right, yeah. And then after that to still, you know, you talk about him as a boy and him. That transition of then talking to, about her as a girl and all this evolves and to be able to, to trust someone else to evolve that way and do it the way you want as a parent. Yep. Well, for me, and I haven't gone through your experience, but I would imagine that if I could uh, have an adopted family of other, other families who have similar situations, I think they would be. And, and we could almost have this. I, at once, I, at one time, I thought about having a retirement commune where um, all my old friends and all of us would just live in one place, and one of us might be responsible for cooking and um, uh, cleaning and whatever, driving people to doctors and stuff. You know, uh, ideally, if you could have that kind of collection of three or four families, basically where you got to know each other's children so well that you would be the best people to step in for each other. Uh, I'm just blue skying here because I've never had to go through it myself. And I don't really know how many other families there are that you're compatible with that you could do it with, but that would put me at ease. I mean, I've had some, you know, when I was raising the kids, there were some neighbors and friends that 
were doing it in parallel to me. And if I was sick or whatever, or something happened, any of those could have come in and substituted. And several of them we did put down as guardians for our children, but we knew them very well and they knew our children very well. So, you know, our last few conversations have been about equality and, and that's such a baseline for so much in our lives and to truly think of someone else as being equal. And, and I just know it, I mean, I've experienced it enough. The majority of percentage of people on, in the world don't see Liam as equal, don't truly see him as equal. They can have empathy for him and, and compassion for him, but to truly think his life is as valuable as someone else's. And we see even in our community of how uh, people express themselves, they can, you can see how they may undervalue their child with a disability than, than over other people as well. And, and it just could be just how we're raised as a society. I don't know. Well, that's really interesting because I probably in discussing this wouldn't say equal because I think nobody is equal and everybody has wonderful potential, wonderful strengths, and everybody has weaknesses. And almost every religion thinks they're the religion that that's the special one and that everybody else is beneath them. So I think for me, it would be kind of like a cognitive prison to be able to think people should treat us as equal. No, people should give them equal access to opportunities, equal respect. Maybe that is kind of what you're meaning, but they're not equal. I'm not the same as my husband. We are so different. It's, it's not funny. So there's no way we're equal. But what I would ask is that everybody be uh, respectful to us, that the laws would apply to us equally. It's the semantics of it. We're on the same page. I think I would maybe put that in, I believe in the diversity Yes. But within the diversity, the equality of life, basically, is what I see. I think and I wouldn't put that there because, uh, okay. and, you know, I, I think in subsequent email, I said I'm into animal intelligence and I'm all into that. And, you know, I, I value animal life along a similar continuum that I value human beings. Um, of course, I'm not going to treat a whale or a chimpanzee the same as a human being, but I'm going to give them to the best that I can. I'm gonna really be um, respect who they are and give them when I can, protect them, give them the tools they need. Um, that's what I'm gonna do, but I'm not gonna expect a whale to be me or, or a, a child with ADD to be the same as a child who doesn't have ADD, so. I love it. We talk a lot about the power of words and, and word choice. Mm -hmm. And, and I love when someone brings a different definition to something that, you know, has become part of my vernacular. I've never seen that equality might not be equal, like equality mm -hmm. might not be fair. I've never thought of it that way because the way we look at it is about like equal rights or just, uh, you know, the definition we've come from is that, it's been highly unequal or unfair or whatever it is. So it's, I, it's, it's very interesting. I, I understand where your mind is going with the openness and I, and I love the insight into maybe the word equal isn't that fair. Yes. Well, when you apply it, apply it to a person equal to another person. No, we could never say that. We don't put people on scales. But what should happen to a person, any person, any human being, any living being, there should be equal tendency towards kindness, respect, opportunities, laws, all of that. 
that should be equal the application but how and, and everybody's not going to even take it the same way even if they have equal access to it some people are going to blow it and some people are going to use it yeah no i love that because i think about it's just kind of another like layer of when we were talking about empathy and it's not about being right or wrong it's just about honoring someone's journey and holding space for their experience and not having to understand it or not having to make it into something just to be able to see it. So I love that that this conversation mm -hmm. is taking the turn there because I think that that is really what opens the doors for empathy is I don't have to make it right or wrong. I don't have to necessarily even understand it when we're discussing and talking about other humans is to just to be empathetic that their journey is just as important as our journey, but the uh, the equality comes in the access to the equal education. It's it's what society gives them, but not necessarily. It's not that I don't even like equal because I it almost like it almost makes me they, not they, like it takes away, <laughs> you know, from from our uniqueness, which I treasure. I treasure every kid's uniqueness and every person's uniqueness. It's wonderful. I really wish there were more people of you in the school system that did. I think that's like the challenge. Like when, when your wonderful daughter, Jennifer, started talking about you, I was like, why did it take us this long to discover who Bev Salata is? Although we received what a, a lot of your nuggets through yes. Jennifer and our we, we received a lot of them before we realized. And I can't just, I just, I'm so jealous of the people who, whose paths you crossed because I think you definitely changed their experience, their viewpoint of their child, what, you know, how they were able to navigate the situation that like 40 years ago was, it's hard to believe, but so much more challenging, you know, um, our children were taken away from us and put in institutions. So I can't I just, I'm so happy that other people experienced you and, and your point of view. That is so kind of you. Thank you. Of course. No, thank you. Because we always think about the people who came before us everything that they did, you know, paved Makes away. me feel like, why am I even complaining about things right now? But you are allowed. You've had a very, very difficult journey. But look, how, look what, what you've accomplished. Maybe you should write that down sometime. Write it down. What you've accomplished. Yeah. Yeah, and read it. Yeah. I used to do that. I actually made a note. Read these things every day. <laughs> exactly. I don't know where that is. <laughs> I don't know. But um, the challenging part of the journey is the part that I just want to bring more parents ease, you know, because that's kind of what we, we came to in another conversation is it's, you know, you hope one day it comes down, but that wall that we're hitting ourselves against is there for now. It's a part of the journey. And I love that you mentioned allies and, and finding your allies and then cultivating peace in yourself that this is, this is the journey, and then paying it forward. Yes, and you know you're teaching your children that as you do it too, both of them. It's so funny because one of the things that parents are always you know, presented with on this journey is just the deficit and the, the, the negative impact of having a child with Down syndrome, and these are the challenges that are going to be, but I wish I had someone with Down syndrome in my life when I was growing up. From the up. beginning. Just from the beginning. I, I mean, from the beginning of Sophia's life as well, she has changed me, just being a mother changes you. But I don't know if it's even just like someone handing you a child and then taking hope away, like that changed me. And then seeing that that hope in my child was like, these people know nothing 
They, they don't have any idea what they're talking about. And the manners in which my son has changed me prolifically. I wish that journey would have started a long time ago. And I guess that's what we carry with us is that that's the piece that we have. And it's too bad that these people don't know that. It's really unfortunate for them. But to know Liam can be an, uh, an ambassador too. Yeah. You raise him well, teach him the skills he has. And if he goes out, he changes other people's impressions. So is there any other advice or guidance that you would give to parents who, you know, on this journey, you know, like we talked about at the very beginning, we jump into it with a diagnosis that's heavy handed. We fight a fight for our education. And sometimes society, although they're getting better, society can view our child with limits and misperceptions. Is there any other advice that you would give to parents? Well, every parent needs to know their child has limits. Yeah. Well, yes. If you've heard, well, some kind of limit. But I'm so I'm Lori so bad. Is not, I'm uh, the worst. That's not Lori's thing. <laughs> like I'm the worst. Lori's like, there limitless. Are no limit. uh, limitless. Yeah. And I know, but again, that's that's the verbiage. It's like, but it matters. It matters. You know, if you think that, it, you can say it. But it, the question is, if you're really thinking that way, then you're looking through a kind of narrow lens of possibility. I think I just don't look at the limits. I choose like there's so much other stuff out there. It's not a denial that there are certain things that, you know, both of my children won't do or they aren't their strengths. It's my refusal to let that be my focus. And, and I will admit that that probably came from because it's all anybody told me along the way, like from being 10 days old. So to me, like inside it clicked, like that's not going to be my conversation. My kids are lucky because he balances it out. No, but, <laughs> but Lori's brought me over to that. The light side instead uh, of the dark the side. The light. I mean, in the fact that I've heard hundreds of thousands of times in my life, people say, and I say, I never would have thought that was going to happen. Or I can't believe that I'm in this place I'm at right now. Or this unbelievable good fortune. I didn't see that coming. So for me to then think I was smart enough to set and know what the limit was, um, I, I'm not there yet, uh, but I do see a lot more than I ever did than before meeting Lori, who we may have started at different ends of the spectrum of things, but we've moved together in, in a, lot of, a lot of ways. Yeah, and you don't know where the limit is. No. And that's why you keep going until you find that your child is struggling with something that they just truly cannot master. Mm -hmm. You just assume that it's your job to help build those skills and build that person. And, and to the extent that your child's not getting it, you have to try a different, different way, different way. Well, I had asked if there's any other last advice that you have, and I promise not to interrupt. Just, I was looking for like any last advice that you would give to parents on this journey, as far as, not losing that trust. You had said instead of you, you're probably going to be broken, but about healing. Um, this is a little abstract, but um, the first thing I would say is besides take care of yourself, know yourself, don't know the future. Don't imagine there are limits, but know how to look when you see your child hitting something that looks like a limit. So it's important to recognize when the child is struggling and then having uh, wonderful resources at your tip, both other parents and other professionals who can help you when you get to that point. Um, about society, um, 
understanding that if they haven't walked in your shoes, they may never really ever get to see it the way you do. The best chance, the, the way I learned about so many different people's lives, um, one is listening to them, but two, I was an avid reader as a child. And that's why I keep saying, write up your experiences or make them into a movie, do something. So when somebody drags that course leader <laughs> into the movie theater, and then they get the backstory, they get the other side, they begin to know. I think, I think actually the arts can be extremely helpful in changing society's attitudes. And you're both in that business. So I see that as your spidey sense, your special skill. I think you can really do something to try to change society's attitudes. But the most important thing is focusing on yourself, focusing on, on Liam, getting help when you're stuck and helping others. And what you're doing is fantastic. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy that we've had the opportunity to talk with you. And I'm so, so thankful and happy that people had you on their journey. That just makes my heart so happy because I have this sneaking suspicion that you were probably their light and their hope in a journey that may have been very dark. And I'm just so happy that you exist. That was such a nice thing to say. I'm happy that you guys do and your podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod. And you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. If We Knew Then.